change is inevitable and can often be chaotic. However, when it's fully organized, change can be dynamic, powerful, and progressive. The Organizing for Change podcast will help you move from a spectator to a difference maker and will assist you in bringing positive change to your community, your city, and perhaps of most importance, you. Hosted by Amanda Decker, drug-free community substance use prevention coordinator, mom to many, entrepreneur, and fan of great conversation, Organizing for Change is heard in over 40 countries and every state in the USA. We are delighted that you've joined us today, because after all, we do this for you, and that will never change. Here's Amanda. Welcome to episode 43 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. Thank you all so much for your support. If you would like to be an insider to the Organizing for Change podcast, be sure to join our email list. You'll be the first to know about upcoming episodes and you will get a summary after each episode with links to anything we've talked about emailed right to your inbox. Just click on the link in the notes to join our community today. So when we talk about diversity, we are talking about numbers and representation and categories and differences. So if we were to open up the podcast and say, hey, everybody, tell us all about yourselves. I am confident that we would have a diverse list of identities and people. Awesome. Right? <laughs> That's what diversity is. And that was our guest for today, Dr. Liza Toulousan. Dr. Toulousan is an educator, speaker, leader, writer, life and leadership coach, and a parent. With over 22 years of experience in pre-K through 20 education, Liza is an engaging facilitator in conversations about diversity, racism, bias, privilege, and power, and creates environments that allow for people to discuss these difficult topics openly. Through her direct work with students, teachers, and leaders, Liza empowers individuals to create a more inclusive organization, environment, community, and team. And now for my conversation with Dr. Liza Toulousan. Well, welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. I am so delighted to have Dr. Liza Toulousan on today. And we are going to jump into some really fun things to talk about. So why don't you introduce yourself first, and then we will jump into some questions and uh, kind of talk about the work that you do. Fantastic. So thank you, Amanda, for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Uh, my name is Liza Talusan. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm based out of Massachusetts. And in my career, I have dedicated my personal and professional life to looking at issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, um, strategic partnerships, and in particular, how all of those impact organization, young people, our communities, and ourselves. So I am super excited to be on Organizing for Change to chat with you and to talk about likely what's happening in our world and in our country and in our neighborhoods and how we might be a part of that solution. Awesome. Already, I have a question. So you just mentioned a couple of words. Um, you mentioned diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice. 
people who are listening might be thinking, I aren't these all the same kind of thing? What's your take on that? They're so different. <laughs> and you are totally right, Amanda. So um, it's always like this alphabet soup, isn't it? People are like, mm-hmm. oh, I do DEI work or I do E&I work or EIJ work. And I always tell people, that's like saying that you are going to cook lasagna, sweet potato pie, fruit salad, and brownies. And you expect to do that all with the same ingredients. They are super, super different. So I'm going to give you like the very shortcut to what the differences are. So when we talk about diversity, we are talking about numbers and representation and categories and differences. So if we were to open up the podcast and say, hey, everybody, tell us all about yourselves. I am confident that we would have a diverse list of identities and people awesome, right? (laughs) That's what diversity is. So when people say they have a diversity plan, they should be talking about numbers and increasing representation. When we talk about inclusion, so it's D-I-E-N-J, diversity, inclusion, equity, justice. We're talking about inclusion. We're talking about a sense of belonging. Um, Whenever I go to organizations, people will say things like, oh, Liza, we're one big happy family, or this is what family feels like, or here's how you feel loved and welcomed. And that's inclusion. That is awesome. And I like to remind people, take yourself back to the sixth grade lunchroom mm-hmm. where it was clear who was included at like the popular table and who wasn't included. Everybody was were nice people, but there was always a group who decided who was in and who was out. Mm-hmm. So while inclusion is lovely, someone is still deciding who gets included and who doesn't. We're talking about equity. So remember, people always say like, oh, Liza, my organization does D, E, and I work. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, "Ah, three different things. Equity is something entirely different. Instead of talking about numbers of people and how people feel, we're talking about structures. So regardless of the people, regardless of who's there, we're talking about structures and power and barriers. So um, regardless of who's in the eighth grade class, we still have a schedule or something going on. So um, there's, there's different types of structures that we look at. When we're looking over to justice, justice is something that I think a lot of people in our world are calling for, especially now, especially after the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade. I mean, unfortunately, there's so many more names on that list, even just a month or two later. And we are talking about a redistribution of power, addressing conflict, looking at risk. Doesn't that feel super different from diversity (laughs) and so different from inclusion? They are all important categories. They're just different categories. So what I would like for the listeners in this work to know is you have to know the right definitions in order to make the right recipe. I think one of the hard things too is people have heard a lot about diversity, but not necessarily understand what some of the last definitions you were talking about. I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, I hear all this talk lately of structural racism. I I don't even think that exists. Tell me, tell me more about that for the person that just thinks this is a new thing that just popped up and everybody's using this buzzword. What what even tell us more about that? 
Sure. So I actually think it's so important to talk about structural racism for a number of reasons. We have been talking about racism as a personal experience. So like uh, if you if you are experiencing racism, somebody's being mean to you or somebody's leaving you out. So remember, that's inclusion. Right. Who's being nice to me? Who isn't? Who's being mean? Who isn't? Oh, I am not racist. Yes, I am. Right. Those are people things. So when we talk about equity and structural racism, we're looking at regardless of who's nice and who isn't nice. What is in place that keeps me from even getting there? So let's think about some kind of jobs that we apply for. So an aspect of structure might be sometimes job uh, descriptions will say must have five to seven years of experience doing this thing or must have previous experience experience in this field. So when I was in college, I was trying to apply to a waitressing job, for example. And of course, it says waitressing experience required. And I'm like, how am I supposed to get waitressing experience if I can't get a waitressing job? So that had nothing to do with whether or not the owner was nice or whether the customers were nice or whether or not people liked me. It had to do with a structure. Now, that's not an example of structural racism, but there are examples in this country where structures have kept people from accessing opportunity. We, we can throw a bunch of things out like redlining or who's a, who can get a mortgage or a loan. So even though the mortgage officer is a nice person, and maybe I'm a nice person, there are checkboxes and structures in place that say she can't get a loan because she lives in that part of town. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with nice people. It mm-hmm. has to do with what's in place there. And I actually think, Amanda, it's easier to talk about structural racism because I'm not blaming you. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying you are good or bad. We just live in a space that that requires us to do certain things. And so when we think about education or banking or jobs or housing, all of those have structures that whether there are nice people in those positions or not, doesn't allow some folks to move forward. So that's structural racism. Fascinating. One of the things I recently heard that kind of was mind blowing to me was just talking about the structural racism when it comes to healthcare. And they cited an example that I still, it just blows my mind away, but they were talking about how medications are designed in the United States. And in order to design a medication, you first have to pick from a gene pool and you have to test that medication. And then that medication finally gets out to the public. And if you're not testing that medication or even drawing from people of color from the gene pool, what ends up happening is you have a medication made for whoever you know you used as for your research. And a lot of the medications are made for people that are white in our country. I'm especially, they were talking about the medication um, for asthma, medications for asthma that don't work on a lot of people of color and even more so on Pacific Islanders, they don't work. And what happens, you know, when people say, oh, there's no big deal. But if we aren't looking at things like that, a bunch of people are not getting treatment and they're not getting, and it doesn't matter. I could be the nicest person ever. And here's your prescription for a, breather but it doesn't work for your child and I I can't even imagine I have two little boys that both have breathing problems so I just you know it it just really blew my mind away just and I think going back to one of the things that you had said um, I think it was a comment that you were talking about you just said sometimes it feels unfair 
because it was unfair to begin with. And yeah. I'm, a, I'm a type of person that's all about everything's got to be fair, right? I've always been like that. I've grown up. That's just a value that my family, you know, everybody gets a, a piece of the pie. And um, we've done a little work lately to talk to me about when addressing some of these structures, it tends to feel unfair to some people. Can we talk a little bit more about that and just kind of maybe you could unpack that statement? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's lots of ways to think about it not related to race. So, you know, I, you know, we have like, well, before COVID, we had dinner parties all the time. People were always here. And I certainly come from a family where we overcook, right? We've got like five people coming over. We cook for 50. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there are times, for example, when we've had people over who've had allergies, for example, and actually can't eat something. So what happened the other day, we um, had a cake. Of course, it was made in a factory with nuts and a person who came to our house, like, couldn't eat the cake, right? And the only thing that we had left were like two or three popsicles that were like in the back of the freezer mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, so on one hand, we we forgot to take into account the diversity of people who might be coming to our house. The second thing is when that child then got the popsicle, remember, there's a whole sheet cake and there's like two popsicles. All of the other kids wanted popsicles. And we were like, well, is it fair that this kiddo gets a popsicle and the others don't? Maybe it's not fair, but does it mean that everyone gets some dessert? (laughs) She got to eat dessert, right? And while everyone got two pieces of cake, she should have the option to have two popsicles, right? So yeah, of course it felt unfair, especially if you really wanted a popsicle. But she had no other... She had no other choices. So the equitable distribution would be that she gets as many type of the dessert that she can have that anybody else would have of the dessert that they can eat. Right. So, so again, not even talking about race, but just thinking about stuff that happens every day in our life, like food allergies, popsicles, kids being mad. Right. So when I think about fairness, it doesn't always necessarily mean that everyone gets the same thing. Right. And, and I think, even growing up, I mean, you just mentioned you have two little ones. Like, my gosh, the, the two things I heard growing up from those kids was, why, mom? Why? Mm-hmm. And that's not fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's just, they're kids, right? It's just how that happens. But as adults, do we then develop more nuanced approach to move away from that's not fair to, you know what, everybody kind of needs their own thing in mm-hmm. order to like, we call it access success, but in order to be included, to have the same kind of experience that's equity. Of course, it doesn't mean you get everything that everybody gets. But if people get kind of their share of what they can access, again, these popsicles, yeah, dude, like that's what we got to do. You can eat the cake, right? Yeah. Makes for a better party, that's for sure. Makes for a better party. (laughs) It's true. Um, You you brought up something else too. I was kind of thinking about, I know a lot has changed. Um, We had originally planned to have a podcast we recorded it and our sound quality was terrible so we get to try over and do this again but um that was before the pandemic and now so many things have changed um and when it comes to just the movement that we see taking place in the united states when it comes to a race just what are your thoughts on that and where where we're at and i know some people kind of think um i heard i heard somebody say the other day like wow one person gets killed by the police and now we're having a mass movement everywhere just what is going on and yeah. um, what's your take on that 
Yes. So um, first, an acknowledgement that there's been violence against the Black community since 1619, right, with the beginning of the first enslaved Africans showing up on these shores. But even before that, because who was on the shores before them were Native and Indigenous people. So this country has had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years rooted in racism. So along with that have come hundreds and hundreds of years of anti-racism and the fight against racism. So you and I have always talked about this, Amanda, this conversation for you and I, it's not new. We've been talking about this forever and trying to dismantle racism forever. What I think is fundamentally different is the fact that this has happened during the time of COVID and quarantine, because even before January, even before December, this country was still killing and engaging in injustice towards black people in this community. So that has been ongoing. It was, it was resurfacing again during a time when this nation was supposed to be all in this together or when this nation was supposed to be experiencing um, challenge together, right? And I think we did. I think for many people who were not Black, and I don't identify as Black, people who in this country were beginning to feel that kind of pressure, this frustration, this growing, like, this doesn't feel fair experience, not to the extent that Black people in this country have or Indigenous people, but we were all feeling this like, ugh, this heaviness. At the same time, it was also happening during a time where you and I were not commuting to work and then going out to eat and going to the movies and going to sporting events. Like, I was home. <laughs> right? Like, I was home all the time. And so activism began to take on a different um, look because people were home. Um, and so I know for friends of mine who are kind of like just waking up to all of this, they will acknowledge they had heard about some of this stuff on the news before, but they're paying attention in a different way because their attention is in a different way. So I do think people are paying attention more and more, Amanda, because they have also had to redo how they do business. I mean, just uh, again, in like March 13th here in Massachusetts is when we shut down and people had to quickly adjust. People had to pay attention. Um, imagine how quickly re we responded to COVID. Although in the United States, we have not responded in the way that other countries have. And we are seeing an increase still in contact. So um, I think what a lot of people were also beginning to make connections to was, wait a minute, we changed business and habits so quickly, like overnight. I went from doing something in person on that Friday, Amanda, to doing a Zoom workshop on Monday. We're talking about three days. So people are saying, well, I don't understand why we're still allowing racism <laughs> for 500 years to continue when we so quickly were able to respond to COVID and both of them are killing people, right? So I think that that is fundamentally different. I think what's also fundamentally different is that um, businesses are taking a stand. White people and non-Black people are taking a stand um, in ways that I've never seen before. And again, I think part of that is we had to have conversations, for example, with young children about COVID and safety and new habits and things we need to be careful of. And so we had already primed ourselves to have difficult conversations. And so now we were slightly more primed to have difficult conversations about race. But in those first three or four weeks, Amanda, I was doing almost nightly workshops with parents and caregivers about how to talk about this with their children. I was not doing that before March 13th. Mm -hmm. So there's a new awareness, a new attention, and now new communities of people who are engaging in this work 
who were not doing that before. I just think that that kind of pressure still has to continue. As of today, as of our recording, um, the killers of Breonna Taylor still have not been, um, well, they've been identified, but nothing's happened in terms of legal status for them. And Breonna Taylor was a state employee and an EMT and a woman sleeping in her bed. And um, so we cannot give up. This movement still has to continue and we still have to fight for justice in the same way that we're continuing to fight for the end of COVID. Mm. So many questions. Um, One, you just talked about having a difficult conversation with your child. I know a lot of listeners out here are people that either work with kids or they have kids of their own. How, How, where do you start when it comes to having that conversation with your child? Let's say your child is, you know, an 11 year old. Um, Where do you start? I'm asking that because I have an 11 year old. (laughs) Um, So I will say this. There's two ways I'm going to answer this question. One, start now. It's not too late and it's not too early. Um, some I have three children, and sometimes people always ask me, like, hey, Liza, how are your children dealing with this? Like, forget the advice you're giving me. Like, what's happening in your own home? And I was like, okay, here we go. Uh, for me, my children have great fluency talking about race and racism and violence, and I'll even throw in white supremacy, because those are not new terms for them. We've been talking about that since they were very, very little. So to be at this stage in our nation's present situation, they're not having trouble talking about, they're angry. They're just like I am, right? They're frustrated. They're protesting. They're moving to action, but they're, they're not having a tough time talking about this. So I will say for those who have children who are younger, start now. You don't have to talk about murders and brutal killings, but you can talk about life and people. And George Floyd was somebody's parent. Like there's many ways you can connect with young children. For those in middle school, they, you know, 11 year olds, I have an 11 year old too. And they, they can handle much more nuanced questions. Um, You know, I always say, Amanda, like before any parent or caregiver talks with an adult, spend time asking yourself key questions. How do I feel about this topic? Mm -hmm. How do I feel about this conversation? Am I okay not having all the right answers? You, my God, my kid still asks me science questions and I'm like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. What is the likelihood I'm going to have all the answers about race and racism? I don't know. So I mean, or like when I think about trying to help my child during crisis schooling with math, I was like, what is this? I know I did it at one point, but I have no idea how to solve this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I have all the right answers for how to solve racism either. So approach this conversation like you would approach anything that your child asks you about. Have some answers, admit when you don't, commit to finding the right answers together. I will say there are phenomenal books right now. Well, they've always been there, but um, phenomenal books for kindergarten, preschool, first grade, second grade, early elementary that talk about race and racism. Um, I'll give you a citation. So socialjusticebooks.org is a fantastic website. They're curated books about race and racism. Um, they, I mean, they've done a really good job. So I would say as a grown up, if you're having some trouble or a little bit worried, go to those books. You don't have to read the New York times top three in order to be like, okay, I got it. 
read young adult fiction. I'm obsessed with young adult fiction. It's how I learn how to talk to my kids. So for, um, you know, the, our middle school age kids, books by Jason Reynolds, um, phenomenal author, writer, I think speaks to that age group so well. So guess what? I read Jason Reynolds so that I can have conversations with middle schoolers. So, you know, again, if you want to read the top three on the New York Times, great. But if that's hard, pick up some young adult fiction, pick up some kids books, sit read, sit and read and have conversations. I always say a couple of good key questions when you're reading with a lower elementary student or middle schooler is just, hey, what feels familiar about this book? Oh, the, that person had a dad. That person has a brother. They, they play soccer just like me. Okay, what feels unfamiliar? Well, it feels unfamiliar. Their skin is different than ours, or they were talking about eating food that was that we don't eat at our house. And then the third question is, well, what do you wonder? What are you curious about? Well, I'm curious if they played with other white kids. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, what do you think that means? What does that sound like? Three questions, Amanda. <laughs> what feels familiar? What feels unfamiliar? What are you curious about? That's it. <laughs> I love how simple you made that. And I, I, I love talking about this too, because I have um, some friends of color and they were just both saying like, oh, one of the things we're so sick of is people saying, you educate me. You're black. You tell me what it is. And I just chuckled. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Why is that not <laughs> the best way to approach learning? Right. Uh, so one, I'll say it depends on your relationship. Mm -hmm. I, of course, I mean, so I'll say it in my perspective. Clearly, there's a lot that's happening in the Black community right now. I can read and read and read and read day and night. But in the end, if I'm not paying attention to the lived experiences of Black people, I'm only getting halfway. So I don't always call my Black friends. <laughs> there's enough on YouTube at this point. Right. I think you and I may have grown up in a time where we didn't have access to videos and even just people talking into a camera. So on one hand, there's there's too many other resources for you to call your black friend. The second is sometimes that changes the relationship. And so you have to ask yourself, am I am I willing to have this relationship changed in ways that actually might harm our friendship? And if you don't know the answer to that, the answer is probably yes. Right. Because I might be like, oh, I'm confident Amanda's going to be fine if I ask for this. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a little unsure, then go do some other work. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third is, you know, I grew up here in Massachusetts. I grew up in all white elementary and pre-K 12 schools. I did a lot of work understanding white people. Mm -hmm. Right. My whole life has been about understanding white people. Um, you should do the same. Yeah. <laughs> you should put the time in that I had to put in. Um, and so that's the other thing. I'll just mention this fourth, the fourth thing. I was, I was talking with someone the other day and he was like, yeah, Eliza, I read a, I read a website where it said, well, if you are going to ask your black friend, then compensate them. He's like, that feels weird. Does that feel weird? And I was like, nope, doesn't feel weird at all. Amanda, you know how many people email me, text me, call me and say, hey, can I just pick your brain for a minute? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yo, I got like little brain left at this point. So I don't mean compensation like a hundred dollars. Sometimes one person sent me 10 bucks to go to Starbucks yeah. and I'm like, it's an acknowledgement that my work isn't free. And that work is really exhausting sometimes. So you might be one person, but you're like 15 in the course of a week that's asked me to do this. 
not this, but yes. <laughs> so, so what is, what does a tip mean? What does compensation mean? Um, yeah. Making it not just my burden to mm-hmm. educate you, but that there's some sort of two way street here. Yeah. Those are, those are some of my thoughts. What, what are you feeling like as you hear some of that? Yeah, no, I was thinking also what it must be like to be a person of color. Like how do you protect your own mental health during this time too? Right. Because I feel like if I were in their shoes and I, all I heard about and saw on the news and just, I feel like I'd be really struggling right now with protecting my own mental health. So I'm just curious, right. like what your thoughts are. Yes, that is very real. <laughs> the mental health part is so real. So there's a couple of things that I've done. I was really overwhelmed by responding to email messages. I would finish checking my email, Amanda, at like 1130 at night, and I would wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and there'd be 40 or 50 new emails that were not like the gap. Like they were like people emailing me. So I felt this pressure to respond to everybody. So finally, Amanda, I sent my away message that says delayed response because of the growing injustice in our community. And for me to respond to you thoughtfully, this response will be delayed. And even just writing that, I was like, oh, that feels great. (laughs) I don't have to respond all day and all night. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second piece is, you know, as a person of color learning to say no, on one hand, I am so excited and so genuinely thrilled that many people, white people in particular, are getting ready to do this work and are like in it and there's this momentum. So there's a part of me that wants to be like, yes, I'm so proud of you. Let me answer all your questions. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, it was just draining my gas tank. Mm -hmm. So um, I have to, I, you know, I created a template of resources. So instead of me responding, Mm -hmm. I'm like, thanks so much. Really proud of you. Here's a bunch of resources. And then I just attach it as an email, but it was yeah. exhausting. It was yeah. really exhausting. Yeah. Again, you might be one person asking me, but in a string of 15 that day. So yeah, protecting my mental health and my wellness was really important during this time. This conversation has been just, I am looking at the time going, how did we already spend this much time? But if you were thinking of something, I don't, I don't want to miss anything that you're hoping that our audience will hear. So is there anything that you think, oh, I really want to make sure they know whatever? Yeah. I want you to know that this work is hard and that you can do hard things, right? This work is hard. There are going to be times where you take two steps forward and one step back. And I will say that's like with everything in life. So don't feel like you have to master race relations (laughs) in one week. Like you will continue to take two steps forward and one step back and it's hard. And I'm confident that you can do hard things, find some support, be in a good community, know that there's ups and downs, but keep moving forward. That's fantastic. We're going to leave it right there. Thank you for listening to the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to empower coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring positive change to their communities. To learn more about us or to get the show notes from today's episode emailed to your inbox, log on to our website. We hope you are inspired by today's show and keep up the great work. See you next time.